is huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Kane, son. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study. Not to bring back. But to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. Let's rock! Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green and Christian Motzka. Hey guys, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm very excited to talk about this tonight. You know, um, this is coming, you know, Christian and I on the East Coast have been, I don't know, but actually, I don't want to speak for you, Christian, but it's been cloudy for about three months, I feel like, <laughs> at this point down here. And uh, I think those clouds are going to break tomorrow and I'm feeling good, but cloudy weather is good weather to talk about David Fincher. Let me tell you that. That's true. And that's so that's why we're here. In keeping with our celebration of Alien 3, we decided to come together and discuss David Fincher as a director, certainly the director of Alien 3. But it's not going to be a conversation that's going to be like talking about James Cameron in terms of aliens or Ridley Scott in terms of Alien or Prometheus or Alien Covenant. This is a bit of a more complex discussion because we're talking about a director who has disowned his film. So I, I thought it might be interesting to have this discussion. Definitely. I feel a little bit like we've avoided talking about David Fincher because he clearly, he so clearly doesn't want us to in the context of Alien 3, right? I mean, we've all heard when interviewers have tried to bring it up and, you know, it's gone poorly every single time. He's reluctant even to talk about it at this point when it comes up, not even giving reasons why he doesn't want to talk about it. Or when people say, you know, oh, well, I actually, I liked it. He's like, basically, well, good for you, you idiot. Like, I, I don't want anything to do with that movie. So I think part of it is we feel almost like it's against the rules to sort of talk about his involvement in it. But what's interesting is that without David Fincher, Alien 3, I really feel would have fallen completely apart. I feel like David Fincher's involvement in it, a lot of the time gets boiled down to a couple of bullet points, right? Partly because that's sort of all he's given us. But, you know, we hear that he came in at the end after all these different script revisions. He got the Geiler Hill script. He did some rewrites to it. He brought somebody back on who had previously been working on it, who had been fired. They kind of threw it together. They started filming. He was essentially in braces. He was like, you know, a teenager practically when they made this movie. He's 27. And um, nobody listened to him. The studio didn't take his notes seriously. And he had no creative control over it. And, um, he was basically walked all over and then had about as far away from Final Cut privileges as a filmmaker can have. He was basically just given a door to walk out of. And um, so what we're left with is this movie that David Fincher has sort of made it feel, I think, like he had very little to do with. But I think if you look at Alien 3 through the lens of who David Fincher became, which is without question one of the most influential filmmakers of the late 20th century and early 21st centuries, um, I, I, I feel very confident saying that. I think you can see his fingerprints 
shining through, even with all that interference, even with a crew that didn't want to work with him, even with the script that had pages missing and he was trying to figure out what the hell the order of things was happening in. You see David Fincher's magic happening, even at that young age. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think it's a movie that we should talk about in terms of David Fincher because it is it is at the end of the day a David Fincher movie. Yes, I would agree. I've known this for a while in terms of his bi- biography. I almost said his biology. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I wish? Um, he comes from a pedigree of filmmaking. He was one of the first. Well. An assistant cameraman on Return of the Jedi. He also worked in the background department. He, of course, famously started Propaganda Films. And while he was involved in that, he directed uh, music videos for Madonna, which won him awards. He was a very, uh, and, and but one of the most famous things he did back when his career was really burgeoning before he had directed any films was he directed a an anti-smoking video which consisted of a fetus smoking a cigarette and that got the attention of everyone in the industry and so everyone wanted to work with him so they found this guy who had an incredible visual style and they thought this is a great this is a great visualist to direct a film but unfortunately Fincher went on record to talk about this. In fact, I shared a clip with you guys today. He was saying how the studio was like, you don't want to work with your friends. Your friends aren't going to help you. This is what you want to do. And Fincher was like, I stupidly listened to them. And I didn't work with anybody that I knew. And they called all the shots. And he's also described his time on the film as being sodomized repeatedly, which I, I always have. I take issue when men use rape um, scenarios for stuff like that. Like, I'm sure it was a horrible, awful thing. But people don't, like, you can't compare it to rape because you just can't. Like, that's just not something that you can compare it to. Um, but he, the language was so specific with him that he had such a horrible time that he he doesn't essentially ever want to talk about it again. But I also feel like, despite everything that he went through as a director, he was the only man for the job, you know? Do you think that on some level he is perpetuating this 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 turmoil because of the way he talks about it or the because of the way he he clearly does not want to talk about it it keeps being a thing that comes up compare it to piranha 2 which was james cameron's first film right masterpiece right but but he'll admit no it wasn't very good i moved on you know it's it's not a big deal tarantino has that earlier movie that he doesn't even count he talks about this is the fifth tarantino film but really there was this one before i can't think of the name of it but but even there there isn't this but don't ever ask me about it. You can just look it up and find out what the name of it was. But the way that Fincher, the the graphic description of, of how he was traumatized or the, the belligerence that he throws back at reporters who ask him about it, or even dare to say, I kind of liked it. You know, he gets, he gets uppity or not uppity, he gets angry. And it's, it's kind of weird. And so it creates this constantly to what you were saying, Patrick, the sense of maybe we shouldn't talk about this. And I find that so odd because look at, uh, look at Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon would teach a class called How to Not Write Bad Movies by the guy that wrote Alien Resurrection. He made a joke out of the fact that he wrote a, a really clunky movie. If David Fincher could let it go, it would go away. You know, It's sort of that stop, stop picking at it. Um, or maybe it's just the most traumatic thing. And, and that's just how he wants to deal with it, is to, is to have the rest of the universe agree to not talk to him about that one thing, which I, I think is kind of entitled. 
And when it came to the first feature, yep. Alien 3, yep. um, did you think, yeah, this is, this is the ideal project for me? Yeah, I really did. I mean, I didn't like the script, but, but I, I, I love Alien. So yeah, I signed up naive and, um, and went off to Pinewood to be sodomized ritualistically for two years. <laughs> I remember going to see it and thinking, rather enjoying it, but equally... Whatever. No, no. <laughs> what was the problem? There's no one problem with a, you know, $65 million fucked up first time <laughs> filmmaker. <laughs> Look, I, did, I, made a, I made a crucial error. I listened to the people who were paying for the movie, and they said, the way to go about this is not to work with your friends. The way to go about this is to work with people who've done this time and time and time again. And basically that translates into meet a lot of people who are going to resent you and your age and are not going to want to take instruction from you and allow them to tell you what you can't do. A lot of people who are just like, what the fuck? <laughs> who is this twerp? So I kind of retreated back to doing television commercials and, and had no expectation that I would ever be employable again. And um, I, got a, I got sent a script and it was seven. It is kind of entitled and, and it also, but it, it does, I, I, I wanna be careful. Obviously I, I agree wholeheartedly that rape metaphors are not appropriate for this. And that, that's always bothered me a lot too. But I do think that it triggers him a little bit when people bring it up because his response is so like immediate and vociferous and specific that like clearly there's some real trauma there for him. And I think part of what I want to do tonight is unpack some of the reasons why that might be. And I think I think I have some ideas for it. So going back, rewinding for a moment to what Jamie was was mentioning about, you know, his upbringing. So his his father was a writer, right? Who actually wrote the screenplay that Mank would later become a film for that that David Fincher directed. And he grew up in this system where movies were a very big deal and where it was, you know, almost holy. They moved to California. He got in love with Hitchcock and he fell in love with all these great films, Butch Cassidy. And then he founded this production company without going to film school. You know, he just, his neighbor also, this is a trivia thing that pops up all over the place, was um, George Lucas, which is pretty crazy. So like he was in this this milieu of, of filmmaking and didn't even go to school for it, founded propaganda films with four, I think four other directors. Let me check. I have that written down somewhere. Yeah. Dominic Cena, Greg Gold, and Nigel Dick. So there's four directors who were all in their early twenties for this, right? He was born in six in 62. I think this was 84. So he was, he was 22 years old, um, starting a, a film production company that would become one of the dominant production houses in America while they were all so young not only doing the Madonna stuff and the, in the anti-smoking commercials, but I mean, doing 50 something commercial credits, doing Rick Springfield, Paula Abdul, five different videos for her. Like he, he was so prolific. And, um, what you notice early on in Fincher's career is this real affinity for working with people he trusts. Right. So when he had control, when he started propaganda films and he was first getting into the industry, he was surrounding himself with repeat customers, right? Like, it went well once. Let's build on success. Let's get those people back. Alien 3 was so far removed from that. And then look what he does after that, right? He makes three films with Brad Pitt. 
He makes movies with, you know, only two cinematographers. I think he's ever used, including Jordan Cronin with some, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's somebody who really likes the comfort of knowing he can trust people. And Alien 3 was as far from a trusting environment as you can get. And we know that from not just supposition, but from actual firsthand interviews that we've done with people who worked on Alien 3, who said it was very much like, you have to watch your back, like nobody's trusting each other, people are pretty convinced this is going to fail, like nobody even knows what script they're using, like this is just, like we showed up, the set was half built, I don't know, you know, people want to go home. So it was an environment where there was no trust, right? And where you had this filmmaker who had a lot of momentum going, all of a sudden being treated like a neophyte who didn't know anything. Um, so I think that led to this dynamic that was really, really painful for him. Um, and I think that that's part of what we see him reacting to. I, I think he was close to giving up filmmaking after this and just going back to commercials. And if he hadn't made seven three years later, which is an absolute masterwork, in my opinion, you know, I don't think we would be talking about David Fincher today the way we talk about him. But um, yeah, I think that's part of it. And the other thing I want to say briefly to that you know, something that we hear from a lot of people who have worked with Fincher, Jake Gyllenhaal famously was uh, going on about this for Zodiac, is he is kind of from the Kubrick school of doing as many takes as he feel feels is necessary to get the shot. Um, and that can take, you know, you know, up to 100 sometimes, which is completely ludicrous, right? Um, there's uh, somewhere I read that in one of his... Uh, Scenes from Mindhunter, the television show that he co-created, or did he co-create that or did he just create it? No, he co-created. I mean, he helmed it, but it was definitely a co-creation. Yeah, um, but he he directed some of the episodes for it. Oh, yeah. and, um, and one of one of the sequences in it was like 11 minutes and it took them nine hours to film or something like it's just absolutely crazy. So all of this is to say he's somebody who likes trust and he likes control, right? He loves to have full control over not just the final cut of the film, but all the little production details leading up to it. He likes to look over people's shoulders. He likes to make sure everything looks the way he wants it to look. He's very deliberate. And if the performances aren't great, he's going to make them stay as late as he feels it takes to get the performances right. And Alien 3 had no trust and he had no control, right? Like the two things that when I think David Fincher, I think of were completely absent from that experience. So maybe that was part of it. I know that once he had switched from film to shooting on the red, um, I read that <clears throat> he likes to do lots of rehearsals, but that he would actually tape the rehearsals. He would, he would have the cameraman run through the whole thing so that while he may end up doing a dozen takes or something, he's actually starting right from the beginning, getting it on, on tape so that they could potentially use those things. Of course, with Alien 3, they were shooting on film, which is when you really have those you know, the, the penny counter sitting right there, like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, there's the, the talk of when they, when they brought him back to do the reshoots and he wanted to get the smoke just right for this, this one shot of like a chain dangling or something ridiculous, but he was right. It had to look a certain way or it was going to look ridiculous. I said ridiculous twice and I shouldn't have. So we'll cut that. Anyway. <laughs> that was actually ridiculous, Christian. I mean, it was. Did, did it. I put the dick in ridiculous. So. <laughs> <laughs> What one thing that I, you know, love about Alien 3 is that certainly even though Fincher had a style that he was kind of working on as a younger man when he was working on music videos and commercials, uh, actually, before I get into what I want to say, Fincher and Ridley Scott really had a similar path, whereas Ridley Scott was also very involved in commercials and music videos, and that's where they 
that's where they were born uh, for all intents and purposes. And so it made sense that they would go with someone who was kind of reflecting a little bit what Ridley Scott was doing. Ridley Scott also had a lot of control during those times. His commercials that he was doing, he was in charge of. He was in creative control. It was a production house that he began. Um, the the odd thing, and even though you know Scott really faced up against studio control and studio opinion and studio this and studio that, much like Fincher did, but the difference is Scott had directed a film before that had done some was marginally successful. And he was also 40. He's like 42 when he did Alien. So he wasn't, not an older man, but he was a, he was not a 20-something. When I, I feel like uh, a lot of people tend to look down on people who are in their 20s for whatever reason, you know, that kind of ageism. So it makes a little bit of sense that Fincher didn't have the the power or the control that he really wanted to because he was, he was uh, what's the term when you're, not sowing your oats, but your, your kind of green. Was, yeah, he was green, and I think the studio knew that. The studio knew that they were giving this kid a chance, but I also think that he was way beyond anyone in of his age at that time. There are some twenty-seven-year-olds or twenty-somethings that are really talented, but he was different. He was someone who had worked on major project projects before major commercials, major talent. He had been a part of all of that. Um, so I feel like it's fascinating to, it's, it's fascinating to me to know that he was treated so, so terribly by the studio. Like, well, if, if you believed in him, if you wanted to bring him onto this project, like, why would you do that if you're not going to let him do what you think he's supposed to do? That, that, portion of his journey never I never understand like it's like saying oh hey I can you it's like I don't know it's like going to a baker and saying hey I love your bread oh but can you not use that that ingredient oh and I wouldn't use that pan right there oh yeah I wouldn't use that oven either like well then why did you hire me you know I think it's important also I don't think it was Fox as a studio so much as it was specifically Guiler and Hill for whatever reason um, so many of the stories seem to come back to them you know, calling him a shoe salesman or whatever. And Walter Hill and David Geiler were of the same generation as Ridley Scott when they made Alien. And so not only was Ridley Scott already older when he, when he made that film than David Fincher was when he made Alien 3, but they had also aged you know, 15, 20 years, whatever it was. I have always wondered why Walter Hill didn't just direct Alien 3. It would have been terrible. I, I don't think that would have been a good movie, but the kind of control, because he was a very well-known director who was on the decline. His films were no longer what they had been. And I feel like for whatever reason, he may even have been taking some of that out on, um, on David, Mr. Fincher. But I just wonder, as you're saying, why would you hire someone and then immediately put these roadblocks out there and, and actively look to have them fail. Like, what is the point of that? Even from a business standpoint, I don't understand it. It makes no sense. And I really would love to have been a fly on the wall in Guyler and Hill's room during some of these conversations, just to figure out like, what were they doing? Like, seriously, by like what, for one thing, why had they not just canned it by that point? Like that had been through so many stops and starts. It already lost a ton of money. 
Um, you know, they were going to be running into union regulations. It was just a mess. They had to get pine wood for all this shit. Like, why not just call it? Just be like, okay, I think this is probably not going to happen. We've got two of the most well, you know, received science fiction films in history under our belt. Um, I, for what it's worth, I think a lot of alien fans out there would probably agree that they should have done that. Like, I think a lot of, a lot of people still feel like, oh, why did they even go through with making alien three anyway? Right. Because it's easy to, you know, we have to get out of our bubble sometimes here in fandom and remember that like the rest of the world fucking hates that movie. Like alien three is not this like beloved thing that people throw on the way they throw on aliens. It's not a movie that most people even like remember or talk about. It's this kind of anomaly, right? And among like sci-fi horror people, it's it's usually talked about as a failure because it just didn't live up to expectations given, you know, Alien and Aliens before it. So like there's a lot of business case to be made for not making Alien 3 also. So not only had it lost money, not only was it a, a complete Frankenstein mess by this point of a film, um, but it was like kind of set up to fail. And then instead of just waiting for the right person to come along or like you're saying christian i haven't considered it but but yeah hill had made a lot of movies that had done really well like why not just have him do it um instead of just like they like brought in basically this sacrificial lamb and i a part of me feels kind of like that's what they did part, part of me feels like they kind of had given up on it by that point they kind of wanted to not have their names as attached to it as they were and they wanted to just sort of like fulfill their contract with fox and kind of get the movie made and be able to say, this is a really pessimistic view, but be, maybe be able to say, hey, it's not our fault this 27-year-old can't direct for shit. Like, what, what do you expect? The Madonna director is going to do a good job with an alien movie? Like, <laughs> you know, and sort of, you know, move on from it. And maybe that really is the the environment that he was brought into was this, like, you're just being set up there to, to fail. Um which is a really painful thing. I can totally empathize with that. That must've been a horrible place to be in, right? They had said yes to Vincent Ward way more than I think they should have. I know you guys love the Vincent Ward script, but that's a bonkers thing to have kept green lighting over and over again. Like, of course, we're going to make a wooden planet. Of course, we're going to have monks and no technology. And like, so I think that all of the yeses had been spent before Vincent Ward exited David Fincher comes in and suddenly all you have are no's because, you know, the budget, a huge amount of the budget had been spent on these sets and they're cobbling together a script. They did not have it figured out. And so they had to just keep saying, nope, you can't do this. You can't do that because we have to get this movie done because in the end you have the release date. So boy, I'm feeling the trauma. I'm, I'm feeling the, this must've been a terrible thing. And again, this interview that Jamie um, shared with us that maybe we could post in the, in the show notes he says, I hated the script. He came on because he loved Alien. He acknowledges that the script wasn't good. And, and then he took this terrible advice about not bringing any of the people that he was familiar with or comfortable with to work on the movie with him. And uh, boy, all right, maybe I'm understanding a little better why David Fincher doesn't like talking about this movie. <laughs> And just to, to jump on that for a second, not only was he brought into this environment where Fox is like, don't bring anybody you know, but the people like we know from the Ralph Brown interview who were being hired for the movie, like also didn't know anybody else that was working on the fit was all these different, like, you know, mismatched generations of crew members and cast members who really had like no chemistry because they were like, what are, what are we doing here? So that that whole like lack of trust again and lack of connection, I think really extended all the way up and down the production line. Except for the with nail and I cast members, which Ralph Brown did know because they were all uh, on on the same show. And so some you know, of those cast members. 
Yeah, he only got Palm again. They wanted to have. That's right. Um, You're right. Yeah. What I find interesting as I think about Fincher's experience on this film is what's happening is very meta in in terms of what the alien films are about, what Ellen Ripley is going up against in terms of the company and Burke. And so then you have this man, David Fincher, who's thrust into this this situation that he has no, he is not in control of, and he's being manipulated by this company. And they're turning into, it's just so strangely meta. Like I've, it, that, that, that part of his experience or the experience with Alien 3 has never, has never been lost on me. It's just very, very ironic that Fox then became the company, the fucking company. And they railroaded people because they had other ideas. Like they had, like the company had other ideas for the alien. And that's always been, that's always been a, a strange, a strange thing for me to ponder. Of course, what would happen then later on is when Alien Resurrection was in pre-production, Fox, knowing what full well what happened with Alien 3, then did a complete like 180 degree turn with Jean-Pierre Genet, and they just, they they laid down the red carpet for him. And there was, you know, obviously there was issues on that set as well, but Fox really was like, hey, we're bringing you on, bring your people, be creative, do what you want to do. And they almost went overboard in that, so overboard that the film's just awful because no one was saying, hey, maybe this isn't going to work and maybe that's not going to work. There was no real voice of reason there, but Fincher's experience was so legendary by that point that really changed how Fox operated from that time on, um, which, I, I again, I always think is really, really, really interesting. And it's it's changed how... Fox even is viewed, at least in terms of the legacy of who they are. Fox is no more. It is now 20th Century Films, which is essentially Disney. But Fox became a pariah among fans, too. Like, this is what this company does to to creative people who have their own vision. They're not interested in it. And they were trying to create a film uh, by committee essentially, and trying to make this film with all these other separate executive voices saying, well, this doesn't work. Well, I think this works. Well, this might not work. And now Alien 3 continues to be one of the most legendary films in terms of production and development hell there is. It is so fascinating. And I think, you know, if we can kind of pivot a little bit, unless do you have more to say on that? kind of pivoting to some of the things that I think make Alien 3 feel like it's still a David Fincher movie, I think would be kind of interesting to talk about. So David Fincher, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are, you know, you're probably just, you know, on the treadmill, pumping some perfect organism. Um, just don't listen to this part. Um, I do think that there are weird stylistic parallelisms with later Fincher movies. I think one of the most unexpected ones is the way that it ends which it had nothing to do with David Fincher, of course, because it was in the script. But um, very few movies end with the lead character killing himself, right? Like that's just not that's not the way you end a movie, right? But um, we see that happen when you know in the game, for example, that he did in the later '90s. Uh, you know uh, where the I'm not going to spoil it, but it ends with a character jumping off a roof. 
Um, you see that with Seven, of course, where John Doe convinces Brad Pitt's character Mills to shoot him and, and doing so kind of fulfills this suicide pact uh, that he had set up. Uh, like a major theme of Fincher's movies is is ending not only dark, but ending with the death of the central character. And that's like very avant-garde. But again, like Alien 3, it, we talk about so much how important it is that it ends with Ripley's death. Although, spoiler alert, we might have an episode coming up on whether or not that was a good thing. So stay tuned for that. But, you know, you know, back to spoiler territory again, for me, it is a good thing because it's a beautiful way to say goodbye to, to Ellen Ripley. Um, and, and like that feels like a David Fincher ending to me, which which is super surprising. That is a really interesting point. Fight Club as well. In a weird way, you think that's what's happening and then it pulls back. And I've never really understood exactly the, the physics of what happens there. And I think we can talk about the ending of the game. It's been decades. It also is my favorite David Fincher film. So I do like to talk about that. Oh, it's yeah. I love point. that movie. Yeah. Oh, good. I, I'm That's not I'm not up to date with David Fincher. I, I was looking at his filmography and I really realized I've I've missed like five out of the last six Fincher films, but but I like the game. And the game does give you the idea for a moment that the main character is going to take a swan dive off a building and die. And it's I even though that's not what actually happens, the catharsis of it is still there, both for the audience and for the character. So yeah, even working for other people's scripts, he's clearly drawn to certain things and the death of the main character is one of them. And even in the game, like not only is it this this pseudo suicide, but it's preceded by an act of tragedy, right? Like like he shoots mm -hmm. somebody. Like it's a really sad moment for that character. Um so like not only is it is it, are these films ending with suicide, they're ending with like traumatic like, I mean, Fight Club, right, ends with this almost apocalyptic vision. Like, it's so, it's so dark and so powerful. That's like, that's classic David Fincher to me. Alien 3 is absolutely a David Fincher movie. I, yes. you know, yes. for whatever, whatever influence the studio had and the changes they made, no one else would have made the film look like that. And it succeeds because of what he added to it. And to that end, what I love about Alien 3, just on a, a a basic level is the look of it. And we've had this discussion before just briefly in terms of it, it seems timeless. There's a timeless feel to the aesthetics. Now there's a couple of moments. And I think Patrick, you brought this up where there's that nineties infusion, certainly during, like during wreckage and rape. Yeah. yeah. Where that music is very nine inch nails kind of, but aside from that, it's a film that you can look at and not really know when it was made. That is a rare thing. Like I, I feel like, Ridley Scott captured that with Alien. I don't think James Cameron captured that with Aliens, to be honest with you. As, as amazing as that film is, it's very, very 80s. I don't get the sense from Alien that it's 70s. It doesn't feel 70s. There's a couple things here and there for sure. And again, um, in Alien 3, there are a couple moments here and there, but it is really hard to make a film that feels like you can watch it and not really know when it was made. It feels it doesn't feel captured in the time of 1992, you know, shot in 90, 91, and then released in 92. It doesn't feel like it's beholden to that time. And I really put that on the shoulders of David Fincher. And it also was the birth of his cinematic style, which I think is second to none. I don't, I know, I don't know if you had seen Christian or Patrick, 
The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which oh, yeah. is one of my all-time favorite films. I think it's wholly underrated. People give that movie shit, and I, I've never seen a movie like that before. It is, it's like an American Dickensian tale. It's just absolutely stunning. And it also kind of showcases Fincher's heart a little bit as well, but the beginnings of that movie are found in Alien 3. Some of the magic that we see in, in that, in the game, and certainly Fight Club are found in Alien 3. Like, despite everything that he went through, his vision shined through. And uh, that's a really hard thing to have happen because there are things fighting against, there were things fighting against him to, to have that happen. And uh, I, I think it's a bit of a miracle of a movie as well. Like, it's, it's, a, it's not a miracle in the sense of, like, we talk about 2049 being a movie that's a bit of a miracle where it kind of shouldn't exist, but it does. I don't, find alien three has that that same quality in terms of it shouldn't exist i feel like the film shouldn't be that good based off what he went through whereas with say denis villeneuve he didn't go through any like he he didn't he wasn't fighting tooth and nail against a studio system with 2049 the studio system was like hey do what you want to do we're here for you how do we support you whereas with of course alien 3 it's like you do what i say when we say how we say if we say blah 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 blah. and so then you have this film that's born from that that's born from that struggle that you can feel the struggle but the struggle works for alien 3 because that's all the characters are doing. But I think in a different setting with a different script, that struggle would have just killed the movie. Have you guys seen the commercial? I believe it was for Coca-Cola that David Fincher did. That's like these rollerbladers in a very Blade Runner kind of world. This relates, I swear. Uh, I love that. I love that commercial. It's, it's super over the top and kind of goofy, but it also is such a love letter to the original Blade Runner. And so it makes me wonder if he had been given the chance to make Blade Runner 2, would he have made it like that commercial? Would it have been almost as slavish to the look of the first film? Because what is so interesting again with Alien 3 is that it doesn't look like Alien and it doesn't look like Aliens. It's its own unique beast. And I feel he did a series of, uh, of commercials. I think it was for AT&T. It was sort of um, in the future, you'll be able to use a, a, an ATM to, to buy concert tickets or whatever. It's all these like things that are going to be available in the future. And it has this neat cyberpunk look that could have been what his Alien 3 looked like if he wanted to make it match Alien and Aliens. But his his film for all that, it's I think it's very tied to the early 90s, but it's also weirdly tied to the late 1940s. It has this post-World War II, um, we're rebuilding kind of aesthetic to it. So I don't know. When I look at that um, Coca-Cola commercial, all I can think of is he had the ability to mimic someone else's style, but he chose not to with Alien 3. He really went a different direction. And I, I think that that's pretty fascinating. And you do have to wonder like, how much of that was because he had so much working against going back to the previous style, because like you said, so much of the Ward film was already made by the time he was there. And that that film would have been impossible to shoot like alien just because of the lighting you know for for one thing but part of it though i do think you're right i think is david fincher specifically you know trying to create a different different distinct visual look 
his identity in the 90s and late 80s as a director really was a visual one, right? Like his music videos, which as Jamie mentioned, won major industry awards are so distinct looking. They are really stylized, really stark, high contrast, really interesting camera angles. And Alien 3 is like that, I think, in its own way. I agree with both of you, even though you're contradicting each other a little bit, you know, Jamie's saying that it's not, it doesn't feel very early nineties and Christian saying that it does. I, I I do think it's both honestly at the same time. I think if you look at it as a product of the time in which it was made, you can really see the nineties written all over it. The sort of disaffected tone there's, there's like a, there's a just tonally going on. There's a very kind of nineties feel, but also there really are a lot of kind of music video set pieces in my opinion in it. But the poetry of it transcends time for me. Um, and, I, and I know, you know, maybe we're not all quite on the same page of Alien 3, but I, I personally, and I think I speak for Jamie too, I really view it as like a really, a, a poem, like a, a, a really deeply philosophical, very layered thing. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with uh, Fincher's camera work and the ways that he lets the story be told which I think people kind of gloss over because it's just sort of put in the back burner a lot, but it really is interesting. So a great example of this is something that's come up, I think twice now on our commentary and on, on an episode when Jamie and I and, and Micah were watching Alien 3 together when he was over at our house uh, last winter. Um, you know, I, I was pointing out the scene where Clemens looks in the locker and says, you know, neither have I, right? And that that is a, is a moment that's really easy to kind of look over because it feels like, sh- it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's good filmmaking, like whatever, it's character development. But like, when you see moments like that, you have to think to yourself, oh, that was a choice that was made to set up a whole separate camera angle, to light him that way, to have the camera inside the locker, to telegraph to the audience two things. One, that he has a secret, and two, that she doesn't know about it. And also to let us into his personal world for a moment, to break us out of Ripley's you know, view and give us a completely different viewpoint for that one little instant. And we see that you know, a, a major Fincherism is things like shooting inside a refrigerator, right? We see that a lot or shooting inside a blood vessel. He likes to do that. He likes to go in into things. And that's like a, it's a, it's a tiny moment that's utterly inconsequential in the span of the film, but it's worth looking at as, as something that David Fincher did that I think other filmmakers wouldn't do. That doesn't feel very early nineties to me. Another way that it kind of breaks with early nineties, in my opinion, is the consistent aversion to handheld camera work, right? You look at other movies that came out in the early 90s, look at movies like, you know, Basic Instinct or Lethal Weapon or, you know, other movies that came out in in 1992. There's a real shaky quality to a lot of it, um, which is partly necessitated by the fact that film rigs had gotten smaller and smaller throughout the, you know, previous two decades. I mean, the the major leap forward with that was the 70s, obviously, and that's where we have the sort of guerrilla, you know, lo-fi filmmaking revolution. But the 90s and then into the 2000s, really, we saw that happen again, First, with the smaller, you know, film rigs that that you know basically was the last generation that was used on Alien Three, and then into the birth of you know handheld digital cinema with the red camera that Christian was mentioning, um, Fincher was shooting the movie like Hitchcock shot movies for the most part, with very specific camera angles that had very very high depth of field, where you had a lot of things going on in a very wide anamorphic frame, and you allowed things to happen at a pace that didn't necessitate all these different camera shifts. Um, so like that plays out in the editing, but it also plays out in the ways in which things are composed. You know, when we did our commentary track, something that I, I kept, you know, uh, pointing out like a broken record 
was, for example, when he would choreograph a shot looking down into the main corridor where there were the briefings and you would have a camera on a dolly or a crane that would be lifted up over, over, you know, overhead as a three quarter shot. And then it would become this vertical shot looking down and move all the way down three stories and then level back out and form a Dutch angle sitting on the ground, looking back up again. It's like very innovative camera work, but it happens very slowly, almost in a Scorsesean way, you know, which I actually think, I think Scorsese has more in common with David Fincher than people, people realize. Um, All this is to say, the way that he treats the camera feels actually, Christian, now that you mention it, very late 1940s to me. It feels very Maltese Falcon. It feels like a like an instrument that's treated with a lot of reverence. And likewise, then when things get switched up, when he switches aspect ratios for the you know scenes from the alien point of view, that to me is like that's that's early 1990s right there. Like that feels like a, a music video. That's true. But the rest of it doesn't to me. And I think it's kind of cool. One term that I would use for Fincher as it relates specifically to Alien 3 is tenderness. I believe that Alien 3 is a v- very tender film. The What you were saying, Patrick, about the, the way that the camera is moving and just how it moves off a balcony and it's just it's slowly um, going to its subjects and then changing its, its, its view. And if you look at the scenes with Ripley and with Clemens and um, with the the prisoners as they're talking and when they're in the the mess hall those are really tender quiet shots alien 3 is not a film where people are screaming and yelling i mean there's that those moments when the you know uh, someone drops the the lighter thing and things go awry and they have to you know there's explosions and then the the overhead uh sprinkler systems come on and they have to kind of deal with it but generally it's a very quiet film i would say it's even quieter than alien and it really gets into the tenderness of Ripley's journey more so than any film does. And I feel like David Fincher has this name for himself as he's this arresting, you know, avant-garde director. And certainly there are elements of his work, um, certainly post alien three that reflect that. But I feel like at its heart, the beauty of Alien 3 is in its tenderness. It's in the time that he takes, in the, the locker door that we see open and seeing Clemens' point of view. And, and you know, seeing Ripley's looking at Clemens from behind after they've had sex, the kind of that afterglow that they're in, uh, that, those quiet moments where there's just kind of talking not really about anything. And... It's just really, really beautiful. And I don't ever hear people talk about that when it comes to this film. And I also think it's the brilliance of Alien 3 is that we get one of the most tender looks at who Ripley is that we've ever seen. Outside of her, Ripley, the mother, aliens, Newt, that whole thing, which is fairly loud, you know, if that makes sense. It was it was a it was a it was a loud note in Aliens um, where, you know. And if you've seen the special edition, you know that Ripley had lost a daughter and that Newt was that that kind of stand in daughter for her. But Newt aside, or maybe not even aside that in the moment where she's staring at Newt on the autopsy table and Christian, you've talked or uh, Patrick, you've talked about this before, how horrible that scene is to watch this mother ostensibly see her daughter be torn up the tenderness in the love of those moments, seeing that, seeing her wince at every moment 
of seeing Newt's body on that slab is just profound. It's a very difficult scene, but it's also so beautiful. And then, and I noticed, uh, and I think we talked about this in the assembly cut or in the assembly cut commentary, the small things like the flowers in the, in the, um, the, the drawers, what do you call those? The, the, what are they, what are those called? Like with the bodies in them, the morgue, the morgue. Yeah, but you know they have all the drawers where the bodies are kept, and you see all those little flowers. Those is there a term little, for that? I don't. Is there a term like? Is, no, I feel like there's a meat locker. Meat locker. <laughs> 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 we'll go with that. Um, but those tender moments, those tender little things, I ha- I don't get in any other film. Now there are tender moments in Aliens, and Aliens has its own thing going on, as we very well know. It's its own thing. But the tenderness that I see in Alien 3 is really because of David Fincher and his attention to detail, his attention to visual cues telling us more about who these characters are. And we've really never discussed that at length. And I just want to credit him with giving us a Ripley and giving us a story, a tender story that sets itself apart from everything else and that her story isn't her story unless we have his film. You attracted me. In what way? In that way. You're very direct. I've been out here a long time. So have I. Just uh, sort of on that same note, a shot that I've, I might've brought this up in the commentary. And if I did, I apologize, but it's going to happen. Um, one of my favorite shots in the movie, which is a shot that I can't think of another filmmaker who would frame it this way is when Aaron and Ripley are having their second extended conversation and they have an argument and they separate from each other. And um, he does this thing that he does in movies all the time that like, I don't, I don't, I really don't think of other filmmakers doing this. Maybe Spielberg has done this. But he takes it's like a really wide shot where neither character is in focus because they're just the the depth of the shot is it's like a 20 foot, you know, to the backdrop. And um, and then just not by not any rack focus or anything, just by the blocking of the characters, they go into focus at the right moment. So he has a shot that's basically focusing on like the immediate foreground, right? Even though they're still talking in the background of the shot. And then Aaron stays in the back of the shot, so he's out of focus, but he's still carrying on dialogue with Ripley, who then comes to the fore of the shot and walks into focus. And then you have this beautiful moment, and then and then the camera isn't moving, nobody's touching it, nobody's fucking with anything. It's just a it's just a camera that now has a character and focus in it, and um, and that like, well, so what does that take, right? It takes blocking it takes rehearsal it takes getting everything set up properly so that you don't have to adjust it because if you adjust it, it kind of ruins the shot um and like we know from talking to ralph brown that that particular shot was like a pain in the ass like it took forever to get that right but like that that's david fincher um and there's other moments like that too where it's just the the, the way that he that he composes the frame is really deliberate and really loving and I think it goes to to his credit tremendously that even in an environment like this that was so hostile, where he says he says you know he he was so he's been so triggered by it and you know the years to come, that even in that environment he was still doing things that that took time and took care you know and he came into this movie when seven million dollars had already been spent building fucking 
cathedral sets. You know, he came into a movie that like nobody was expecting to do well. And he came into a movie where he had zero power and he still found moments of beauty like that. He still was able to fight for it. And one other thing I want to say just while I have the mic is, uh, is color grading is a huge thing. Of course, that we associate with David Fincher, anybody who's seen any of his work, I guess Christian hasn't in the last 10 or 15 years <laughs> knows that most of his stuff, uh, Mank being the obvious exception has a very distinct green or blue kind of cyan tint to it. I think Zodiac is a really good example of that where the whole movie feels like it's sort of seen through a specific color, color space. I think even the social network is like that. Um, Alien 3 is a great example of that, similar to Denny Villeneuve, who we know does this too, where the whole movie has a very distinct color palette. Um, and that's partly in terms of the sets and the costumes, which are all basically the color of various potatoes. But the the actual camera, the film stock, the way that he's graded it in the edit um, is very deliberate and very specific. And to his credit, in a movie that's very dark, he doesn't lose any of the midtones that give it a lot of definition. So it looks good still i mean it hasn't had the same of course it's been you know looked at again for subsequent blu-rays and things but it hasn't had the same soup to nuts 4k restoration that you know for example alien had a few years ago where you know all of a sudden this movie that we've all seen 500 times looks like different and we're like i mean i can't even imagine being in christian's head watching the 4k and being like that prop is from this you know like all the new information that was on the screen um you know, Alien 3 hasn't had that because it's been abandoned, but I, I like to think that if it did have that, that we would find even more amazing detail in it because Fincher, in spite of everything, put it there and it shows, I think. So how do we move forward as we're, we're all fans of Alien 3? You you guys love Alien 3 like a five-year-old loves his mother. And, and I you love fucking Alien hate 3. it, I think is what we're hearing. <laughs> no, Yo, Christian I, I, fucking hates it. <laughs> I recognize that it could be better, but it's also amazing. It's an amazing film, but Fincher is not going to change his mind, right? There's, there's no way for us to, to make, to, to send him enough flowers and, you know, candy hearts to make him ever change his opinion. It, but it, I feel like he's stuck in a rut. He's stuck on the, the trauma of making it versus every film. Every film has problems. Think about, what Cameron went through on Aliens and what Ridley Scott went, went through on Blade Runner. They both went through very oddly um, oddly similar situations of really not getting along with the crew because they were from the wrong continent. So why can't Fincher let it go? And how, as fans, can we reconcile that? Because I want to be able to say, David Fincher did an amazing job on Alien 3, and I'd love for him to hear that at some point. What do you guys think? It depends. It depends on, I, I feel like we've all been through traumatic things and I would imagine that at the age that he was, even though he was fully competent, was wholly traumatic for him. And I think about things that I've been through in my life that have been traumatic and like for, I'll just, I'll just, okay. So uh, the documentary that I released years back, the whole production around it, interviewing people took me six years to get everything that I needed to do to create the documentary was really traumatic for me. I ended up going through a depression after that, that lasted two years. I would, and for a while I was like, I don't want, I'm, I was, I was sorry. I did it. Honestly, I, I, it was so hard for me to do that. I, I was like, why did I even do this? What was the point? And so not that there's the same thing, but, trauma can be similar in people, you know, even though 
the, the, the nuts and bolts of it might be different. The trauma is still the same. So I guess I can understand Fincher not just thinking about it and just all of a sudden reliving that trauma again. And so it makes sense to me if I think about it in those terms that this man doesn't want to dis- discuss it again. Like you, if you've seen the moments of interviews where they talk about it or he talks about it, you look at his body language, look at his face, it like he completely changes. He completely like, it's like he, he taps right into that trauma. He's like, fuck, no, I'm not doing this. So I get it. I get it. And I don't know to your question, Christian, if there is a way forward with this, I think my anecdote would be, and this is something Chris, uh, Patrick and I had discussed and we're still discussing in terms of having some type of documentary that explores what this movie is to fandom and, it's its whole entire legacy. But I don't know if there's a return home for David Fincher on this. It might end up being like Roger and me, where the, the pivotal character isn't actually in the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would still I would still watch that and still make it and see what happened. I, I think that'd be a funny, a funny approach for it. Um yeah, I you know, I think that's a really good point, Christian. And it's something that I've thought about quite a lot and you know i i've had projects in my life not not to jamie's level of, of trauma but that have been really difficult for me personally like things where i've sacrificed you know time with my children or sacrificed my health to finish things on a deadline you know and they've gone on and and you know i've done you know a, a premiere of like you know an orchestral piece for example that took me five months of really hard work where i stayed up two nights in a row frequently to finish it and it was just miserable and i was exhausted you know and then you get there and you got the premiere and it goes over fine and then you like never press play again, you know, in iTunes when it comes back around, you know, I don't even like, I don't promote those pieces. And if somebody were to add, like, I, I can think of like four or five projects that I've done right now that I would not want to ever hear again because I associate pain with them. You know, that's, you know, one tenth or one, you know, 20th of my output that I feel that way about. But I do have things that I just would would rather not, not talk about because they're just kind of painful. You know what I mean? So like, that, and that was a very different environment where like the piece, the pe- those pieces were all people like them, you know, like they weren't like tragedies when they were premiered, they did fine. Um, and it was a very different environment because it wasn't because of control it was just because of what I was kind of doing to myself to get the work out. Um, so like I can see on a small scale, how just from a creative standpoint, that can be a very painful thing to kind of want to knock it into. But I also think, you know, part of it is like, you know, we don't owe David Fincher doesn't owe the world anything. Right. Like David Fincher made this movie when he was the age, many of us are still like living with our parents and trying to figure out what to do with our lives. You know, he was so young when he did this. And, uh, and since then he's made like Oscar winning films and he's been, you know, done incredible work. And, and he's even returned to science fiction, of course, with love, death and robots, which has been universally acclaimed. And, and in my eyes contains some of the best science fiction I've ever seen on television. Um, so like he clearly has shown the world over and over again that like he is capable of doing this on his own terms really, really well. So like, why would he want to revisit something that he feels really, really badly about? And I think part of it too comes down to that control issue that I was bringing up in the beginning, which is like, he, he has had such incredible control over the process of all of his movies. Um, and you hear that from everybody, even people like, you know, like Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, you know, they talk about how, like they enjoy working with him, but it's like not fun, right? <laughs> like he's very, very controlling and wants everything to be done really specifically. And, you know, actors don't enjoy that a lot of the time. 
And Alien 3 wasn't a chance for him to do that. So it doesn't feel representative to him of what he's capable of. It feels like, you know, he was a ghostwriter basically. And um, so like, I, I don't think he's ever going to feel any better about it. Like, and I, I don't think he needs to, I don't, I don't want to re-traumatize him. And I, I do really think to Jamie's point that this is like an acutely triggering experience for him. And it must be weird, you know, like I, I think about this a lot, like it, it must be weird to have something out in the world. Cause like the pieces that I was talking about have maybe been heard by a total of 2000 people ever. You know what I mean? Like this is a very small audience. Alien 3, although it didn't make a lot of money, was still seen by millions of people. Like it's still it's still something that like most people have at least heard of in the Western world, right? So like that's a lot of people to be watching something that traumatized you, right? That's a lot of eyes on your pain. And um, that's a lot of people who, like we said in the beginning, are largely not in favor of it. You know, a lot of people who think it's kind of a shit follow-up to aliens. And like kind of laugh at what they perceive as a lack of quality in the movie. And like, that's a David Fincher movie. So not only does it not represent his work, but it's like, it's poorly received and by a lot of people. So yeah, I, I personally don't think that there is a way forward, but Christian, do you think, what, what, what do you think? Coming into this, I had a bit of a, sh- a chip on my shoulder and I was thinking he made 11 movies, right? 10 of them, everyone aside from me seems to love these movies. You know, he, he keeps knocking it out of the park. So why can't he get over the fact that his first film didn't didn't meet his expectations or wasn't so much fun to work on? Can't, you know, just grow up, get over it. You made a film and we'd like to talk about it as part of your overall filmography. As we've been talking, I feel differently. And now I think that maybe the perspective is more, he has made 10 films that he's very proud of and would like to talk about. He'll talk about all of those 10 films. Why do people keep bringing up this earlier thing where quite honestly, he probably should have taken his name off it. It probably should have been an Alan Smithy film to the extent that he now disowns this project. Maybe it it shouldn't be looked at as a David Fincher film, even though 100% the things that are working in that film are thanks to him. If he can't see it, I don't know because he's, you know, he's not going to, he's not going to call us up and and ask us to talk to him. And he's somewhat of a reclusive fellow. Um, It probably is a moot point and we can do what we want to do, but if we were to make Fincher and me, the documentary about how alien three miraculously rose out of these, these ridiculous situations. Um, I think we'd have to just guarantee that he would not have any involvement whatsoever. And that would be understood going into it. And, and that would be okay. But it is one of those things where like, now that we're talking about, <laughs> as, as we're talking more, I'm feeling kind of guiltier about the amount of alien three coverage that we do. I'm not apologizing for it. We're going to keep doing it. But like, but it must be hard for something so like specifically painful to like always keep coming back up again. You know, like that must be really hard to be David Fincher for that. But I, I'll push back on that, Patrick, because I think what we're doing is we're finding something beautiful in like in that wreckage. For him, it's wreckage. For us, it's beauty. For us, it's poetry. So I don't think him hearing if he does, like there's a a brief clip of him being interviewed and you see him and the guy's talking about he's he he compliments alien three and fincher goes oh whatever like he couldn't even comprehend that this film has done some good so i i would suggest that what we're doing how we're honoring this film is probably does him good it would be one thing if we're if we're just slagging it off 
all the time, just slagging on it and just criticizing it. I would think that might be painful for him because he'd be like, yeah, I know it sucks, doesn't it? But for us, it's different. We're finding this depth and meaning in this film that for him robbed him of depth and meaning. So I feel like we're honoring Fincher by doing this more than we are doing anything else. That's just my read on it. It's also, of course, worth noting that David Fincher is only one of the people that worked on it. And so we're super excited about the actors that were in it. We're super excited about the composer that made the music and on and on and on. There's so many aspects of this that while he had a hand in them, if he disowns the movie, they don't have to. They're under no obligation to also step back and say, okay, Alien 3 doesn't exist. It does exist. We have purchased it. We have watched it. We have read about it. We've written about it. We've recorded about it. It, it is part of our fan culture it is part of overall culture. Let's talk about the fact that Animaniacs had bald Ripley in, in an episode back in the 90s. I mean, it, it made an impact. So in that sense, he, he can withdraw his name for himself from this film, does not take the film away. And, and so we're celebrating everyone that was involved. We were having this conversation, Patrick and I, about uh, Rosemary's Baby and whether it's something we even want to talk about given who directed it, but you can't take away everyone else that had a part in it. You know, the person who wrote the novel, the person, the people that acted in it, blah, blah, blah. So in that sense, David Fincher is, is totally free to never talk about or experience his trauma again. But to your point, Jamie, we're not going over again and again, this movie sucks for these reasons. We're talking about the amazing things that this film contributed to the overall saga, to science fiction in general, and honestly to filmmaking, because it is the launch pad for David Fincher. You can go and look at this and say, my God, this man is going to have a career. That's, Charles de Lazarica had that great um, comment in our post of saying he went to see the movie and said, wow, that was really good. Too bad that guy's never going to make a movie again. Right. So it's wonderful. If, if it had gone better, maybe he would have gone on to be a different filmmaker, you know, like maybe part of his subsequent career has been has been lessons that he learned from that process of things that he will never let happen to him again, um, which I think is good. And, and also, you know, I, I'm coming back around again. I'm not feeling guilty. So thank you both for helping me feel better about it. But uh, yeah, Christian, your point is, is great that Alien 3 is much more than just David Fincher. And I'm going to close out my thoughts as we kind of circle back to the end here with, with why it is still a David Fincher movie, I think, and why there's a reason he hasn't taken his name off of it yet. But before I do, you know, it's important to remember that the Alien 3 that we get is even more so than most films, like truly a monumental effort by a lot of people. Because you can go back to William Gibson twice, you know, Eric Redd, David Toohey, Vincent Ward. You can go through all of the producers. You can go through Giger, who had such a bizarre, stilted experience with this whole project. You can go through the, you know, effects, you know, magicians who pioneered rod puppetry and you know early uses of cgi in this film you can go through all the different incredible things that happened to get this movie made that involved a lot of people you can go through like i was saying at the beginning the generations of crew members who were there from different continents and different studio backgrounds who were forced to work together on a script that was still being written as they were doing it you know like it truly was just this monumental task that took so many different people to make and at the very tip of that spear, that enormous spear, is this 27-year-old filmmaker who was, you know, in my to my mind, the only person who could have possibly made sense out of all of that chaos 
and in so doing create a poem out of it. And so my closing thing here is that I think there's a reason why it's not an Alan Smithy movie, because I think that he probably could have done that. And, and I'm sure he considered it, but he took the job because he loved Alien. You know, he took the job because he was a fan. And to this day, he remains a huge fan of those movies. And if you want to see no better evidence of that, watch Love, Death, and Robots, as Jamie was pointing out before we were recording. You know, he does his particular homage to it in, in the current season, but also throughout other episodes that he was involved in in the production, like there's just Alien written all over that movie and Aliens. So he's he's still hugely, you know, a fan of it. And I think at the end of the day, there's a part of him that is proud to have his name on an Alien film, even if it was something that was so painful. Like, I feel like, you know, his legacy and Alien's legacy are are forever intertwined now. Um, and Alien 3, you know, for all of the the ways that we feel like it's been forgotten about in society, you know, you're absolutely right, Christian. Like, there, we still see memes of Ripley and the Alien, you know, daily. Somebody will post something about, you know, getting LinkedIn invites. It's one of my favorite ones. <laughs> like, getting a LinkedIn notification, you know. It's, it's just a part of the pop shorthand and culture, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's a movie that still continues to speak to us in very interesting ways. And I'm really grateful for David Fincher for making it the way that he made it and for taking all of those incredible efforts from other people that were so bizarre and all over the place and creative something not only cohesive out of it, but something that speaks to many of us as art, which is a pretty huge task for anybody in any situation, let alone a first-time filmmaker in his mid-20s never went to film school, making a movie that was doomed and creating art out of it. Well said. My last thing would be uh, some of the greatest artists in history, no matter the genre, have experienced some real trauma, experienced some real horrible things, and it's made their art better. Now, I'm not saying that, oh, I'm glad they went through those things. It's, It's terrible. I don't ever want anyone to go through hardships in their lives. At the same time, that's what life is. It's a series of of challenges that we have to meet. And I would say that what he went through as an artist has made him a better director. He would not be the director he is today if he did not experience that. And so because of that, I am eternally grateful to him and just to continue to see him making these incredible films. He's made one bad film, in my opinion. It's not even bad. It just wasn't up to par, which was... Um, Panic Room. Panic you fucking Room. hate Panic Room. Yeah, I don't hate it. You hate that fucking movie. <laughs> I think pa- Panic Room is not bad. It's not bad. It's just not good. Yeah, I was with him okay. at the at a uh, uh, what do you call those screenings where they have the focus group screenings. He was there, and uh, when I was filling out my, he was like standing right next to me as I was brutalizing it in my uh, overview. Like I had my little pencil, and I was going down the little thing, and I, I just I I did not like that movie. But he was like right there, and I should have went up and said, "Hey, Mister Fincher, how are you doing? I loved Alien Three, but I didn't." He would have slapped you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I am—he's one of the most exciting directors continuing to work today. Any movie he releases, I am there to see. Like I will go into the theater to see his film, and his films continue to feel fresh, and they continue to feel authentic and original to his vision, and there's not a lot of directors out there working right now who can say that. So my hat is off to David Fincher. I think that was pretty good. Yeah, and and with that, uh, I'm going to read got a couple new patrons. Is that okay? Let me just pull them sure. up. So just before we close tonight, we, we have a few new special patrons that we want to give a shout out to. One of them, Giovanni Mason, uh, I got a shout out on the previous episode, but I kind of messed his name up and I feel bad because Giovanni's a great guy. So Giovanni Mason, uh, also Bobby Gilpin just joined and we have a new high tier donor, 
in our Patreon at, uh, at which is Don Lawler who joined us at the the Ten Hauser Gate level, um, which is really really appreciated. So thank you so much to all the patrons who support us. We are up to ninety of you right now, which feels amazing to me. And um, you are of course directly bankrolling the production of our film that is that we're you know getting ready to make, and and it's all due to you. So thank you so much to all of you. To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.